Welcome to European True Crime. I'm your host, Lisa. As always, you can find images from today's case on our Instagram, EuroTrueCrime. Transcripts and source notes are available on our website, europeantruecrimepodcast.com. In today's episode, we'll be crossing borders between Ireland, where the crime occurred, and France, where the victim was from. The geography of Ireland comprises relatively low-lying mountains surrounding a central plain with several navigable rivers extending inland. On the southwest coast of Ireland lies West Cork, a tourist region known for its rugged natural environment, beaches and social atmosphere. Sophie Toscan de Plantier, who also went by her maiden name of Bono, lived in Paris with her fellow film producer husband Daniel and her son from her first marriage, Pierre. Her and her husband both had very successful careers in the film industry, but she didn't relish being in the spotlight. She had visited Ireland several times as a teenager, and in 1993, she bought the cottage at Tourmore as a holiday retreat and peaceful refuge. She visited regularly, often with her son, where she was known as Sophie Borgnol by the residents of this rural area of West Cork. She decided to take a quick trip to her cottage just before Christmas in 1996. She had asked some of her friends if they would like to join her, but none were able to. She arrived in West Cork on the 20th of December, intending to fly back to Paris on the 23rd for a holiday in West Africa with her husband. On the 22nd of December, she headed to Three Castle Head, a scenic area where Dunlow Castle is located atop 100-meter-high cliffs. Here she walked for about an hour before heading to Billy O'Sullivan's pub in Crookhaven, where she was a regular on her trips to the peaceful village. The owner, Billy, had a friendly relationship with her and enjoyed practicing his French with her when she would visit. She had a cup of tea and a scone and spoke with some of the locals before heading home. Billy is the last known person to see her alive. The following morning, around 10am, Shirley Foster was headed into town when she spotted something in the pathway near the gate that led to Sophie's property. When she got closer, Shirley realized it was a bloody and beaten body. She called for her husband, Alfie, and ran home to call 999, the Irish emergency number. They only had two neighbours in their remote area, an English couple, who they knew were out of town, and a French woman, who only visited a few times a year. Alfie believed that they had seen Sophie at the house over the weekend, so Alfie headed to her house to warn her of the gruesome discovery and not to go outside, but he got no answer when he knocked on the door. The guardie arrived, they had never had a murder in their quiet town before and therefore had no experience with all the steps that they needed to take to preserve the crime scene. At 12.45pm, the body was identified as 39-year-old Sophie by a nearby farmer who knew her. Dressed all in white, she was wearing a blood-soaked cotton t-shirt, leggings and boots. Her dressing gown lay beside her, possibly ripped off or abandoned while trying to escape her attacker. Her leggings were caught in the barbed wire fencing and it was clear that a struggle had taken place. She had cuts along her arms, broken fingers and a clump of hair in one clenched fist. Her hair was streaked with blood, her face badly beaten, resulting in one of her eye sockets having been fractured, and on her neck there was the imprint of a dark martin boot. Atop her robe lay the murder weapon, a bloody concrete block. There were no signs of sexual assault and one of the collected blood samples revealed DNA that didn't belong to Sophie. When they examined Sophie's house, they found signs that there could have been another person there that night. Two wine glasses were washed up beside the kitchen sink, and at the dining table, two chairs had been pulled close together. A reading book was resting on the table beside the chairs. 
At 2pm, a news report announced the murder, and within 20 minutes, the first journalist arrived on the scene, Ian Bailey, an English investigative journalist who had moved to West Cork for a change of pace and to write poetry in the peaceful countryside. He didn't spend much time at the scene or ask many questions. Nevertheless, the international media frenzy would shortly begin. The local guards were not equipped to conduct a murder investigation, so they contacted the experts in Dublin at the Garda Technical Bureau. The investigators in Dublin got the call at around 3.30pm. The journey to West Cork took them almost seven hours, and when they arrived at the station around 10pm, there was no one there. They managed to call 999 from the phone box and ask for someone to come back to take them to the crime scene. There had also been difficulty contacting the pathologist, and they were unable to move the body until he arrived. Sophie was left where she was found, out in the elements, guarded by two policemen through the night until 24 hours after her discovery when the state pathologist finally arrived. It was now the 24th of December, and she had been left outside for so long and in freezing weather. It was impossible to determine her time of death, information vital to any murder case. Detectives believed that during the night of the murder, someone had come to the property. While unsure if they had entered the home or not, somehow the person caused Sophie to exit the house. Whether they chased her or by her own volition, Sophie came to be at the spot by the gate and the perimeter fencing where she was violently attacked. Sophie fought back, and the two of them collided with the sharp briar bushes and barbed wire fencing, scratching both Sophie and her assailant. The killer had eventually overpowered her and used the concrete block to bludgeon her. On Christmas Day, members of the community gathered at the pier after mass for the annual Christmas swim in the icy water. The reality of the murder was beginning to sink in, and people were discussing and speculating the crime. There were rumours everywhere, and for the first time, people began to lock their doors at night. Detectives were there as well, keeping an eye out for anyone who might have scratches on themselves, possibly caused by the thorny vines of briar branches. On the 11th of January, there was a major development in the case. The guardian received a phone call from a woman going by the name Fiona, who was calling from a phone booth. She said that she had seen a man approximately 1.5 kilometres southeast of Sophie's house on Kilfada Bridge at around 3am on the night of the murder, but she would say no more. The guardie made a plea on television for her to call again, and the following day, she did. She said that she didn't want to identify herself and get involved in the case. When she had been out that night, it had been with an ex-lover, and she didn't want her husband to find out about it. On the 24th, she called for the third time but she made the mistake of calling from her home. The call was traced and her real identity revealed. Her name was Marie Farrell. Marie did a television interview recounting her story. She had been driving from Goleen to Skoll and saw a man in the headlights of her car. He was wearing a long dark coat, walking along the bridge and appeared to be in a drunken state, waving his arms around and looking up to the sky. Then, in early January, Marie was at the grocery store when she saw the man again. She got the attention of the nearby guardie and pointed the man out. They told her that his name was Ian Bailey, journalist and poet, first on the scene of the murder, Ian Bailey. Ian moved to West Cork to escape the rat race, where he now lived with his partner Jules, roughly three kilometres northeast of Sophie's house. He hadn't done any journalism since leaving England, instead choosing to focus on his passion for poetry and pursue the romanticised image of the Irish poet even changing his name to the Irish spelling of Owen. With Marie's statement in hand, the guardie narrowed their focus onto Ian. 
At this time in January, he was still actively covering the case as a journalist for the Irish Daily Star and the Sunday Tribune, focusing on the so-called French connection. However, back in December, immediately after the crime, Ian seemed to know details of the investigation that no one else did. On the 28th, he wrote about the two wine glasses on the sink and that she hadn't been sexually assaulted, things he shouldn't have known about unless he had a very good connection with one of the investigators. He also began writing and implying salacious things about Sophie's love life, such as her having multiple lovers. None of the locals had heard of this rumour before, and it's not the kind of thing that Sophie would have been able to keep quiet for long in such a small town. His lover's theory then segued into his stories about the French connection to the case, speculating that her husband Daniel had hired a hitman because he stood to lose half of his estate in a divorce from Sophie, and that he had a large life insurance policy on her, of which he would be the beneficiary. With regards to lovers, Sophie had had a lover in the past. In 1992, she began a relationship with Bruno Cabonet. Daniel knew about it and Sophie had made the decision to separate from him, but they had remained married. She had visited West Cork at least twice with Bruno in the time that they were together, but it is said that Bruno was quite possessive and around Christmas of 1993, their relationship had ended acrimoniously and she went back to Daniel. At the time of the murder, Bruno had been in France at an art event, so he was ruled out as a suspect. Ian had referenced the wine glasses and chairs that had been pulled close as evidence that Sophie hadn't been alone that night. However, her family described how Sophie commonly read sitting in one chair with another pulled close so she could prop her feet up on it. The discovery of the book on the dining table next to the chairs supports this theory. The wine glasses by themselves, clean and next to the sink, don't necessarily mean that anyone else had been there that night. Sophie's husband Daniel had seemed suspicious at first. In Ireland, people spoke of the husband who wouldn't travel to West Cork to identify his wife's body or even speak to investigators. But back in Paris, Sophie's friends saw a devastated and grieving man, riddled with guilt for having not been there to protect his wife from the horrific crime. The hitman theory also didn't hold water. Sophie's holiday cottage was in such a remote area that even locals would have struggled to find it. And besides, what kind of a hitman would travel all the way there only to rely on finding a rock nearby to be a murder weapon? In hindsight, many thought that he had invented this theory to devote attention. The first time that Ian heard that he was being investigated was from Helen Callanan, the news editor at the Sunday Tribune. He had called her up to discuss the story he was planning on writing for the next issue when she told him that people had been saying that he was the killer. People had already been discussing the scratches that they had seen on Ian's hands and on his forehead in the days following the murder. Ian said that the scratches on his hands were from cutting down the branches of a spruce tree that he intended to use as a Christmas tree and that he had gotten the one on his forehead from a turkey that he had slaughtered for Christmas dinner. According to Ian, these had all been very fine scratches, but according to other people, they were more pronounced than that, perhaps similar to the scratches that had been caused by thorny vines. At the end of January, Detective Superintendent Dermot Dwyer visited Bailey. They each gave slightly differing accounts of the events. While both agree that the conversation was initially friendly but probing, Ian stated that by the end of it, it had become more threatening and that the detective had basically implied that he would pin the case on him. Dwyer denies these claims, but it's one man's word against the other. Through interviews, detectives pieced together a timeline for Ian on the 22nd and 23rd of December. On the night of the murder, Ian said that he and Jules were out until half past midnight. 
Both Jules and Ian said that they had both gone straight to bed and neither had gotten up during the night. Jules later changed her story and said that she thought that Ian might have gotten up during the night, about an hour after going to bed, but couldn't remember him coming back to bed. Ian then changed his story to say that he had gotten up during the night, but he had only gone to the kitchen to work on a story he was writing for around 30 minutes before returning to bed. Jules also stated that the first time she had noticed the so-called turkey scratch on his forehead had been the following morning. That morning, Sophie's body had been discovered at 10am. Ian said that the first he had heard about it was from Eddie Cassidy at 1.40pm. At 2pm, it was announced on the news and by 2.20pm, Ian was at the scene. However, that morning, Ian had had plans to deliver some turkeys to his neighbours, a local stated that at 10.45, they had seen Jules in the village and that she had said, Ian is out investigating a murder. Then at 11.30 and 11.45, he called neighbours to cancel his deliveries, saying, a French woman has been murdered. Again, it seemed like Ian had information he really shouldn't have known yet. Ian was then arrested under suspicion for murder on the 10th of February. He was held for 12 hours for questioning, the longest duration the law would allow under Section 4 of the Criminal Justice Act. While detained for questioning, police searched his property. They searched the house for the clothes they believed he had been wearing that night, specifically a dark coat and big boots. They found the remains of a fire, 2 to 3 meters in diameter, outside one of the buildings on the property. Witnesses said that they had seen a fire burning on the property on the 26th of December, Ian and Jules, however, said that the fire was much older than that. In the remains, police said that they had found mattress springs, buttons, jeans and boots, but any hope for potential blood or DNA evidence was gone. With nothing other than circumstantial evidence and no confession, Ian was ultimately released. He repeatedly claimed he was innocent. However, people still believed he did it. Why? Because it turns out he had told people that he did. There are too many of these statements to dive into all of them in just one episode, but one account was given by a couple, who on New Year's Eve were in a pub where they spoke with Ian about the murder. They said at one point he broke down crying and said, I did it, I did it, I went too far. Another account was made by a 14-year-old boy. Ian was giving him a lift home, and while making polite conversation, he said Ian blurted out, I went up there and bashed her brains in with a rock. Ian said that it was possible that some of these statements were true, but that he frequently spoke sarcastically or ironically and used black humour. The rumours spreading about Ian became stranger and stranger. People began talking about how he liked to destroy religious artefacts, or how when the moon was full he would guard and howl at it in only his underwear, a hat, and what they call his magic walking stick. Thirteen months after the murder in January of 98, the Gaudi once again arrested Ian. Under Irish law, investigators are limited to detain a single suspect twice for a maximum of 12 hours per arrest. They were not going to be allowed a third opportunity. The Department of Public Prosecutions, also known as the DPP, assesses Garda investigations and makes the decision as to whether or not the Gaudi have a strong enough case to prosecute their suspect. They examined the case that still hinged entirely on circumstantial evidence and with the second interrogation again yielding no confession, they had decided that there was not enough proof to warrant the prosecution of Ian Bailey. It was a massive blow to the investigation, but Ian seemed to be enjoying all of the attention and interviews. 
In December of 2003, Ian Bailey sued eight Irish and English newspapers for libel, with the potential for €260,000 in compensation. He cited that the media had been harassing him for seven years. Most of the witnesses from the criminal case were subpoenaed, and all of them repeated their statements the same as they had all those years ago. Even though Bailey had been the one to take the newspapers to court, it felt more like he was the one on trial. Marie Farrell, the only witness placing Ian out of the house on the night of the murder, also testified to Ian harassing and intimidating her after she had named them in her statements to the guardie. She recounted events such as him coming by her shop and saying, I know you saw me on the bridge that night, or him making cutthroat gestures at her, and when she refused to retract her statement, he had made her life hell. When it was Ian's turn to be cross-examined, he was asked about his troubled relationship with his partner Jules and the domestic assault charges against him. He admitted to three documented instances, two of which took place before the murder in 1993 and 1996, but denied being a violent man, downplaying the events and referring to them as more like a tussle and that it took two to tango. These so-called tussles had resulted in Jules having sustained injuries such as black eyes, chunks of her hair ripped out, bruised lips, and on one occasion eight stitches in her head, while Ian walked away without a mark. At the end of it all, the judge ruled against Bailey. The trial had backfired on Ian, and people were convinced of his guilt now more than ever. Back in France, Pierre-Louis, Sophie's son, was ready to enter the fight. In September of 2007, Sophie's uncle and Pierre created the Association for the Truth about the murder of Sophie Toscan Duplantier, with whom they would meet monthly. The family started off knowing nothing about criminal law, and they began to learn about the differences between the two countries' justice systems. The French system was completely different to the one in Ireland. The French rely on a so-called bouquet of evidence, observing the culmination of all the evidence gathered. Whereas the British system that Ireland followed is the one more commonly known, the beyond a reasonable doubt way of determining a conviction. Through the efforts of the family and the association, the French investigation began in 2008. Then came another blow to the investigation. Marie Farrell retracted her statements. Compromised by the fact that she had been out with an ex-lover secretly on the night of the sighting, she claims that the police forced her to identify Ian as a suspect. Police apparently told her that it was only for their records and that she would never have to go on trial. She said that in her initial statement to police, the man she had seen didn't fit Ian's description at all. She said that it had been a lean, tanned man of no more than 5 foot 10. However, over multiple interviews, the guardie had morphed the description and stretched the account until the description had turned into an imposing, broad man of over 6 foot, a description that then fit Ian Bailey. Bailey started to bounce back and the criminal case was swinging in his favour. The Guardi were inexperienced, making many mistakes during the early days of the investigation and also over the subsequent years. The crime scene hadn't been properly secured and had been trampled. It had taken over 24 hours for the necessary personnel to get to the scene and there had not been enough of the unidentified blood for DNA testing. And the large gate, which had been covered in blood and taken as evidence, had gone missing. There was a lot of discussion online about the whereabouts of the gate over the years and how it could go missing. 
it wasn't until mid-2021 that the guard had claimed that they hadn't lost it, but they had chosen to dispose of it around 2006 once it had been deemed to not have any evidentiary value. In 2011, the DPP revealed why they had chosen not to prosecute. They had cited questionable practices from the Guardi and that the investigation had been biased. Many witnesses had not given their statements immediately and a large section was devoted to the credibility, or lack thereof, of Marie Farrell. In regards to the inclusion of Ian's history of violence against women and his confirmed violent beatings of his partner, the DPP had said that that kind of behaviour was not uncommon in our society and didn't prove that Ian was capable of killing Sophie in a similar way. Back in France, Sophie's family had been continuing to put pressure on the French government, and so the Irish Garda eventually handed over their files to the magistrate in Paris so that they could continue their investigation. In November of 2014, Ian was suing again, this time the state, and it looked like he might win this time. He accused the Garda of conspiring to frame him for the crime, and Marie Farrell was now his star witness. The defence argued that Marie had proven that she was not credible many times, and when the issue of the man with whom she was that night on Kilfada Bridge was pressed, she continued to refuse to name him, storming out of the witness box and the courtroom. She was convinced to come back in, and was warned by the judge that her behaviour was unacceptable. He then told her that there were going to be no secrets in this trial, so she had to name him. She gave a name, which turned out to be another lie, meaning Marie Farrell had lied under oath and committed perjury. Ian's case, which had seemed so strong to begin with, crumbled, and he once again lost the case, leaving him with a multi-million euro bill for the costs. Ian had stated time and time again that he didn't know Sophie and that he had never met her, that she had only ever been pointed out to him by Elfie once when Ian was at his property to do some gardening work. However, Elfie says that he is 90% sure that he didn't just point her out, but that he had actually introduced Ian and Sophie. Back in France, they had gathered even more evidence that contradicted Ian's statement that he had never known Sophie. Sophie's friend Agnes remembers being told about a man who wrote poems, it was on a trip to Ireland a few days before Sophie's birthday. She called Agnes and told her that this man wanted to meet her and tell her about a project about poetry. Agnes goes on to say that Sophie found him strange and a worrying character. Guy Gerard, a filmmaker and colleague of Sophie's, said that the evening before she departed for Ireland, they had spoken and she told him of her neighbour, Ian Bailey, a writer and poet that was interested in domestic violence stories. In May of 2019, the French trial of Ian began in absentia. They had never spoken with him personally, and the majority of the case was based on written documents provided to them by the Irish Garda. 22 years after the murder of Sophie Toscan du Plantier, the French court found Ian Bailey guilty of her murder and sentenced him to 25 years in prison. Ian was, of course, not in France, so the French had to petition for his extradition. Almost a year and a half later, in October of 2020, the High Court in Ireland ruled that Ian would not be extradited. In March of 2021, Jules broke up with Ian via letter, but he has been unable to find somewhere else to live due to his notoriety, so he's still residing at Jules's cottage in West Cork. In September of 2021, Ian Bailey said in an interview that he would be willing to take a polygraph test to prove that he wasn't involved in Sophie's murder. But then in early October, once one was offered to him, he stated that he was too busy and would not be taking it. The investigation is still ongoing and there are frequently new updates in the case.
With this case, there is far more focus on Ian, and he is sometimes treated more like a celebrity than a murder suspect. The mistakes made by the Garda are not as heavily scrutinised or publicised. If it weren't for the trampled crime scene and the incredibly long wait for the necessary personnel, maybe there would have been enough physical evidence to find the guilty party. Above all else, Sophie is the one who seems the most forgotten in this case. If Ian Bailey is innocent, he has been persecuted for the last 25 years. If he is guilty, he has avoided justice for far too long. After reading countless articles and watching many documentaries, all that I know for sure is that Ian Bailey is an eccentric man with a history of domestic violence. But is he a murderer? Ultimately, there has been no physical or forensic evidence found, and I think the majority of us would rather see a guilty man go free than see an innocent one incarcerated. As the case is still being investigated, hopefully one day we will find out the truth and find justice for Sophie. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for listening. You can find European True Crime on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube and Patreon. Links are available in the episode description.